In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Mary, Queen of all hearts. Saint Louis Marie de Montfort. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. It is only fitting during the season of self-denial to have the opportunity to take some time with this marvelous little book by Henri-Marie Boudin on the life hidden with Jesus and God, which is itself essentially a spirituality of self-denial. The book itself was written about 350 years ago in France. And uh, in preparing it for publication, we worked with a translation prepared by Edward Healy Thompson, an Englishman who is notable for having translated a number of works of powerful and important French spirituality and theology into English. And in a number of cases, the only English translations we have of those works are due to Mr. Thompson having provided those translations some 200 years ago. And working with the text, just to give some background on it, I worked with a friend of mine, uh, Mr. Andrew Ouellette, who is an adjunct faculty member at Holy Cross uh, College in South Bend, Indiana, and working toward pursuing a doctorate in sacred theology at the University of Notre Dame. So he's quite the academic heavy hitter. Um, and the two of us split the text up and um, captured it, formatted it, and then working through it, we cleaned up a couple translation issues for some key terms. And then all of the footnotes in the book, except for a couple, are notes that the two of us added as we were working on it. Um, Father Boudin, when he put this book together, didn't footnote it like he did some of his other works. And the translator, likewise, didn't include many footnotes of his own. So most of these supplementary footnotes that explain who different people were or give a brief definition of some key idea, those are things that the two of us inserted in the process of preparing the book for publication. Likewise, the cover of the book is worth speaking about for a moment. It's a, it's a remarkably beautiful image. And it's a scene that at one point was commonly depicted, well, not uncommonly depicted in Christian art. It wasn't as if it was universally available, but it was much more commonly depicted than it has been for quite a number of generations. And the scene that it shows is Jesus kissing the hand of his mother as he says goodbye to her um, to leave home and begin his public ministry of preaching. And so the, the image has a double referent. This is Jesus leaving the hidden life of the home at Nazareth. And yet he also goes forward as that one who will not be easily recognized. And so he carries a certain degree of hiddenness 
with him as he goes forward because he is the very word of God made flesh who is pleased to conceal his glory in our fragility and our weakness. And so a remarkably, remarkably beautiful image uh, that in a sense captures the very spirit of the work, that there is something about this way that the Lord hides himself that Father Boudon understood as intrinsic to a healthy and deep spiritual life. In fact, the title of the book that we have is one of the changes that Andrew and I made to the existing English translation. For a reason that isn't entirely clear to me, Mr. Thompson, whose translation is very accurate and very fine, all told, um, made the odd decision to title the work The Hidden Life of Jesus, which is a very non-literal translation of Father Boudin's title. And that creates some confusion because of the way that expression in English, the hidden life of Jesus, has been used. When we speak of the hidden life of Jesus, we normally are referring to those 30 years where his life was hidden in the home at Nazareth and expected it is going to be a sustained reflection on that mysterious and fascinating period of Jesus' life. When in fact it is not the case, it is rather a quotation that Boudin is making use of from the letters of St. Paul. And quite literally it is the life that is hidden with Jesus or Christ in God. We'll speak a little more about that scripture passage in just a minute. Um, and then the subtitle, A Spirituality of Self-Denial, is simply an addition that I advocated for to clarify for the reader just what kind of book this is. Um, and that is inconsistent with writing from this time period normally had a main title followed by a subtitle which was explanatory. Um, St. Louis de Montfort, for example, does that. For in his work on the rosary, the admirable secret of the most holy rosary, which we often abbreviate in English as the secret of the rosary, the full title of the book continues, so that you may be converted and be saved. And this is a, this is a common thing in spiritual writing from the period where there's a, a title that gives the overall theme of the work followed by a subtitle which explains the thrust of the work. And so recognizing that the modern reader would need a little bit of orientation to that mysterious title, The Life Hidden with Jesus and God, we added the subtitle, A Spirituality of Self-Denial, to clarify that. That having been said, it's important to begin with a couple words about the author and this book and um, why we have a work like this. Father Boudin himself lived in the mid, six, mid to late 1600s. He died in the early 1700s. And he was a remarkable French churchman. He rose to prominence in the Diocese of Evreux, where he spent his life as a, as a priest. He's known as the Archdeacon of the Diocese of Evreux. That's a title that we don't have in the church anymore. And as some combination of vicar general and chancellor of the diocese, he wielded tremendous authority. 
And Father Boudin was greatly preoccupied, as were many others in France at the time, with the issue of renewing the church. And the, one of the great elements that led to the foundation of what we refer to now as the French school of spirituality was an insistence that the key to renewing the church involves the renewal of the priesthood, the renewal of the clergy. This is something that Father Boudin absorbed from those who came before him. And he took that very seriously to live the life of a truly renewed priest and as the archdeacon of the diocese to insist on a certain renewal of the quality of priestly life in his diocese. And as all legitimate movements of renewal experienced sooner or later, that was met with serious opposition and resistance. Because even those of us, often especially those of us who are in the business of reminding others that we need to change, don't like changing ourselves. And you know, that, that is just a fundamental way we work. Um, and so Father Boudin, as he did this, had a second preoccupation with regard to the renewal of the church. He preached missions. He was renowned for his ability to take very elevated ideas and make them accessible to the average person. But the other thing he noticed was a real lack in pastoral care in the church. And it was a preoccupation he noticed that we're always trying to reach everybody and as many as possible. And that leads us to ministering to the lowest common denominator. And he said, those who really do feel tugged and called to a greater degree of perfection often have no one to accompany them often have no one to help them. And this is a common complaint in our own day, where there are many who, having practiced their faith seriously for a while, have a desire in their hearts to learn more and to move deeper and find that, lamentably, there aren't many options out there for them that they can rely on. There are, because most of the programs are geared to the beginner, or to initial formation. And these are good and necessary, but for Father, Dema, uh, for Father Boudin, that was a dangerous oversight. And he very famously, in one of his letters, wrote to a priest and he said, don't be afraid to set time aside away from the others to care for that handful who want to take their faith more seriously and grow to a certain degree of perfection. Because he said, a single soul like that may produce more fruit for the kingdom than a thousand others. And again, it was just this insistence on applying a heavenly calculus to our decisions. And it wasn't an elitism saying, only pay attention to the ones who want more. But it was, don't neglect them. And uh, he dedicated a serious part of his own ministry to exactly that, to spiritual direction for those who wanted something more. And as he did that, he was conscious of the fact that there was a lack of good and solid spiritual direction available. It's one of the things that spurred him to write. So that he could produce something that would give the individual who wanted to grow spiritually a fighting chance 
to arrive through some reliable guidance at a greater depth of the spiritual life. He didn't see it as a substitute for having a good spiritual director, but he also recognized that many people simply don't have access to one. And he highlighted that as one of the areas in which he thought the clergy needed to grow. The priesthood needed to be stronger in terms of having men who were spiritually qualified to truly direct souls on a movement toward perfection, not just simply outfit them with the basics. That's a remarkable vision when you, when you think about it. Um, and he dedicated himself to exactly this. And so in producing his works, in the back of his mind, there are a number of things like this. He didn't write exalted theology. He wasn't writing to engage academic debates that would take place on university campuses. He was writing to take the solid, substantial, unchanging truths of the faith and make them accessible to the faithful or to the interested cleric in a way that would allow them to embrace these things and live them. And so he's not writing to explain things. He's writing so that one might be able to respond to Jesus Christ by means of these things. And it's important to recognize that. So in his books, there's always this element of a combination of explanation and exhortation. In other words, understanding what I'm saying is not going to be enough. As a good preacher, he wants to challenge, by means of his explanation, his reader to grow more deeply. He wants to extend an invitation as well to a more vigorous embrace of the spiritual life. The particular book that we are looking at today wasn't explicitly written to be a companion piece to anything else, but it serves as a worthy companion to another one of Boudin's books. In fact, it was the one that we worked with here last year when uh, I was part of the editing team with my friend Andrew that prepared his more famous work, The Holy Ways of the Cross, for publication. And that book has a particular weightiness, a particular importance. It actually greatly influenced young Louis de Montfort when he was a seminarian. And it exerted a decisive influence, not just on his theology, but on his spirituality and the way he would eventually live his vocation. One can see elements of the shape of his living of his vocation in the words of Father Boudin in that book, The Holy Ways of the Cross. And so Father Boudin, just as a little bit of extended background, wrote the book, The Holy Ways of the Cross, as a reflection on a single statement from Jesus Christ, which spiritual masters have often considered to be the great one-sentence summary of Christian discipleship. It's what Jesus himself says discipleship is. That being the case, we want to pay attention. And it was, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would be my disciple, and so note, do you want to be his disciple? Then this is what must be done. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. St. Louis de Montfort, influenced by Father Boudin, also has his own work, which unpacks that single verse of Scripture, 
It's what we know today as his circular letter to the group of the Friends of the Cross. And the same thing, it's a sustained reflection, a sustained meditation on that single verse of sacred scripture. So note the program, to follow the Lord if I really desire to do it. Step one, deny yourself. Step two, pick up your cross. Step three, only then follow me. Having reflected upon all of those things in his book, The Holy Ways of the Cross, Father Boudon also has another work, the one we're about to consider, that focuses on that first step, self-denial. That's this book. And so note, this forms, he didn't explicitly write the two books to go together. He never said, this is part one, or this is the explanation of that stage from the other book. He never makes that claim. But quite clearly, it can stand alongside the other as, let's do a fuller unpacking of that crucial first step in the process. Once I've decided, or once I recognize I am called to follow the Lord more fully, I want to take that first step. Let him deny himself. How do I do that? What is that? What does that look like? And that, in a sense, is really what we have as the matter of this particular work. And to organize his ideas on this issue of self-denial, Father Boudin makes a striking choice of a text from Holy Scripture. And so again, note his method. He organizes his thoughts, he organizes his ideas around something that he finds in sacred scripture. And his engagement with that idea from sacred scripture is what allows him to see more clearly the meaning of the things he would like to impart and explain. The scripture passage that he selects is a passage that the attentive believer will recognize because every year on Easter Sunday, it is one of the options for the second reading. And again, note that this is not an insignificant passage if it is found in the, among the texts for Easter Sunday. And that passage is from Paul, St. Paul's letter to the Colossians. In French spirituality of the time, especially that which was influenced by the so-called French school of spirituality, the use of scripture is the fountainhead of theological and spiritual reflection. And in particular, the members of the French school paid great attention to the letters of St. Paul. And so we see that Father Boudin is drinking deeply from that same well of inspiration. And so this letter from St. Paul that the church uses in its liturgy, and know what this says about him as an attentive priest. He's also allowing the liturgy to teach him. He's allowing the liturgy to open up inside of him. And then he teaches out of the wealth of not just his private reading of sacred scripture, but of his celebrating of the liturgy 
with and for the people of God. And so St. Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What a remarkable statement that is if we just pause with that. Because so much of what we hear when we reflect on Christian life is we do hear about the importance of dying to yourself. We hear time and time again to die with Christ and rise with Christ. We hear time and time again in the prayers of Lent, let us fix our minds on the things of heaven. Note how all of this is language that has found its way into our common Christian vocabulary. And yet it is the kind of language we reflect too little on and reflect far too little out of. And so Father Boudin is going to say to really be saved by Christ, to really be claimed by Christ, is to be pulled out of one reality into another. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so note now what, what he's going to do. St. Paul says, fix your minds on the things of heaven, not on the things of earth. But what is more visible? The things of earth. What fills our ears? The noise of earth. What fills our eyes? The sights of earth. What are we in contact with? The touch, the feel of the things of earth. And if we are not careful, surrounded by the things of earth, we lose sight of the things of heaven, like they're hidden. Hidden from view, not because they're not there, but because our vision has something blocking our ability to see those things. It's not that the voice of heaven doesn't call to us, it's that other sounds are filling my ears. And so that voice of the Lord becomes merely a whisper that I have to strain to hear as if it's a secret. I long to touch the things of heaven, but every time I reach my hand, I'm, reach, I'm grabbing something else. And so it's almost as if grace is buried under this mountain of earthly experiences. And if it's buried deeply enough, I forget that it's even there in the first place. It's hidden from me. And so even as St. Paul is writing this, he's reminding the believers, there is so much that can block your view. There is so much that can impede your reach. There is so much that can drown out the call of grace. Set your mind elsewhere. And then there's that beautiful mysteriousness to that statement. For you have died and you, don't know what he says, not you, your life is hidden. Let's just pause right there. Your life is hidden. Hidden from you. Hidden from the world. Hidden with Christ.
in God. And if you would really find your life, know yourself, you have to go look for it. And it's not as obvious as you think it is. The fullness of life to which you are called is not easily visible amid the clutter of the things of this world. You have died and your life, risen with Christ, is hidden with Him in God. And so it's not just that if you would know Jesus, you have to look elsewhere, but if you would, if you would know yourself, you have to look elsewhere. Because where Jesus is hidden, so is the truth of yourself. This, it is this multiple layers of hiddenness which is the engine, the hinge, around which everything that Father Boudin says in the book is hung. And so he's going to write about the hiddenness of Jesus in a way that forces us to realize I don't understand myself like I thought I should. And so then it becomes a call to not just know that Jesus is hidden, but to join him in that hiddenness. And when I can join him in that hiddenness, I have a certain fullness of union with him. It's a remarkably subtle and beautiful use of Holy Scripture. And, you know, full disclosure, trying to wrap my head around all of this greatly influenced my own preaching over the last several months. A lot of my preaching through Advent and the Christmas season um, those of you who were subjected to it, um, would note how some of these themes of hiddenness ran through everything I said, up to and including just last Saturday's Feast of the Incarnation of the Lord. And I spoke of the hiddenness of the glory of God and, um, and the glorious hiddenness of God. Um, you know, all of that was shaped by my own desire to try and understand just what it was that Father Boudin was doing because I had the job of writing the introduction to the book, which meant I at least had to understand it basically. Um, and uh, it was an incredibly rewarding experience um, in, in going through that. And so now as we look at the book, Father Boudin is going to do a few things with his writing. And one of the subtexts of his writing is the way he engages the broader context of France, and in particular of his own diocese of Evreux, as he writes and explains things. Because France in the 17th century, on the one hand, is an obviously Christian land. In any town you walk to, and certainly in the major cities, there are the churches. Numerous, many of them large, many of them grand. There are the many confraternities and societies of spiritual life. There are the people who, by and large, have been baptized. And so on the one hand, nothing is more obvious than Christianity. The buildings are there. The crosses are there. You see priests. You see religious you see people who are believers, and yet he says, and yet isn't it amazing how little visible Jesus Christ himself actually is? On the one hand, there are these outward signs, 
And yet, on the other hand, there is this curious and odd indifference to the Lord in the middle of all of this. And so he'll use what sometimes seem like trivial examples if one doesn't catch this. He'll talk about people, and then, you know, he's scandalized by people getting down on only one knee to genuflect before the sacrament. And on the one hand, you want to say, well, is this really where you want to die? Is this the hill you want to die on? But what he's really pointing to in that example is not that this one thing is a crisis. He's pointing to a broader climate of casualness that creeps in, where faith becomes taken for granted, where we feel a little too free to ignore the Lord, because we're surrounded by the trappings of belief in the Lord. And so what happens is, without even realizing it, the Christian heart wears the costume of discipleship without ever having the reality of discipleship within it. And this is what he's concerned about. And he sees it in the indifferent way clergy can celebrate the liturgy. He sees it in the way that the faithful make excuses why they don't have to follow certain demands of the gospel. He sees it in a broader inattentiveness among all of us. How is it on the one hand that without the Lord sustaining us in being, we fail to exist and yet we pay him so little attention? You know, and it's, it's, a, it's a remarkably sobering question when it's put before us. And so he wants to talk about this oddness that, on the one hand, God is everywhere. On the one hand, God is invited, involved in the lives of all of us, even the non-believer. And yet, non-believer and believer alike spend most of their day paying him no attention. There's something about God that is hidden. And how do you discover what is hidden? You have to look for it. Either someone has to show you, or you have to look for it. And we become so convinced that everything's okay that we stop looking. And we don't feel any need to learn from anybody what it is we need to see and understand. And so the book itself, then, is divided into two parts. The first part is a reflection on the hiddenness of Jesus Christ. And then the second part is a series of chapters talking about the practice of hiddenness that we can embrace and learn to love. So note the idea. One learns about the hiddenness of Jesus for the purpose of coming to share something of that hiddenness in how we live. In other words, we hide ourselves from the world to be with him. And this doesn't mean non-engagement with the world. Okay? It means non-preoccupation with the world. And it's important to catch that. Father Boudin, who would have loved to have an anonymous life away from the public eye, lived most of his life very much in the public eye, preaching as a figure of authority. And so he's not putting forward a spirituality of withdrawal and non-engagement. 
he's putting forward a spirituality of non-preoccupation, of letting, letting my eye learn to rest habitually someplace else than on worldly matters. Not that they are never important, but they're next to never the most important. And, um, and you know, it, it's, a, it's a remarkably beautiful vision. And the engine that drives a lot of this is an idea that is absolutely central to the theology of the French school of spirituality. It's a word that doesn't have any really good translation into English. The French word is adneantissement. And literally, literally, the word is translated as annihilation or destruction or bringing to nothing. You know, so the, the weak translation is self-denial. And it's this idea, the ane of aneontismon, as one of the fundamental dispositions of a vigorous spirituality that he's going to invoke. In fact, one of the chapters is Jesus is hidden in his self-annihilation. It's that word, the aneontismont of Jesus Christ. And again, one begins not by looking at ourselves, one begins by looking at Jesus, who, as St. Paul says, lays aside his glory rather than grasping at it and takes the form of a slave because he, and again, the English word is a little weak, he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. He laid himself completely aside. He totally denied himself. He reduced himself to nothing. And note then, in the incarnation, what does Jesus do? He brings himself, in a certain way, to nothing. St. Louis de Montfort picks up on this idea. He says, he who is becomes he who is not. That would be us. Compared to Almighty God, we are as nothing. And so the Lord, great and powerful, brings himself that low. It is a radical reduction of himself, a radical surrendering of himself. And it's this element of the self-denial, the self-emptying of Jesus, the, not the self-destruction, and that's the important thing. It is not the reckless destroying of oneself. It is, in a sense, if we understand the essence of love is the ability to lay yourself aside for another, this is its most radical expression. He completely lays himself aside as if he wasn't there for the sake of someone else, and that would be us. And this movement continues through his life. He lives in a world surrounded by God that refuses to acknowledge God. And he comes into that world where even his own people, time and time again, with the memory of the Red Sea being parted, are quick to forget and turn away and seek consolation elsewhere. And what we see in Israel of old is something we see in the Christian heart across the ages. We have these moments of knowing the Lord is with us, of knowing his grace is clear and strong, and this odd ability to quickly forget and to quickly find ourselves lost in other things. 
And so we live in a world where the Lord doesn't overwhelm us on a regular basis with his glory and his power, and yet is always present, but overlooked. And what does the word of God do? He enters that world and hides himself. He wears the clothing of our weakness, he who is mighty. He who is the source of all life takes on a body capable of dying. And so he hides himself in the opposite. And what does that mean? To truly meet him and know him, one must learn to look deeply into, beneath, and through these things, or one will miss him. And so as the Lord lives and preaches, this is the common problem. Who is he? Why does a regular guy do these things? And there's an inability at times to recognize him. And when the moment of recognition is there, there is often a hardened heart that refuses to take the next step into recognition. And so the Lord is treated with no small amount of contempt and indifference. And rather than fighting against that, he works through it. To the point where he reveals his glory in what looks like defeat on his cross. Victory is hidden under the appearance of defeat. Life is hidden under the appearance of death. To the extent that even after he dies, he's hidden in a tomb. And he rises from the tomb, but no one sees it. Everybody sees him die, but no one sees him leave the tomb. This is Jesus. His life is hidden. On the one hand, even as he is speaking to thousands, even as thousands see him die, there's something hidden about all of this. If one only rests his eyes on earthly appearances, one misses the great truth of what is actually happening. And one could say God was never here. When in fact, he's, uh, he's, he's effecting the greatest work that the universe has ever known, right before our eyes, but not in a way our eyes are conditioned to recognize. And then this is the other element, though. After he rises from the dead, how does the world come to know his resurrection? Because people like us go and bear the word. And so he hides the truth of his victory in the testimony of imperfect men and women, outfitted by his grace to go forward. And he founds his church to be his mystical body on earth. And so note, the sacraments that we celebrate bear the power of his victory. But it's so easy to reduce them to mere rituals in our thinking. It is so easy to reduce them to mere custom. And the Lord extends the touch of his mercy through the members of his body, many of whom are indifferent to him. And so he continues to hide himself in his church. He's hidden within us. And one of the reasons he is so little visible in the world is we do such a tremendous job of hiding him. 
You know, so these are the kind of things that Father Boudin is at pains to point out. You know, it's our, our easy mediocrity covers up the beauty of his presence. And, you know, so as he's writing, one of the things he's doing is he's holding up a mirror to his reader. You know, he's, he's seldom accusatory, but he's continually holding up the mirror in a way that says, is that me? Could that be me? Oh my God, it is me. Um, and the issue is not that I wallow in, oh my God, I'm such a bad believer. The issue is that as I begin to recognize this, I begin to see that I need to begin moving. Here's where I need to begin changing. Here's a starting point for my spiritual growth. So note how that works. The issue is not, oh my God, we're all just terrible at this, because that's an invitation to despair. The issue is, oh my God, you know, we are pretty terrible about this, but knowing that, we can begin to move. We can begin to change. And, you know, and even a small movement toward change can produce a great effect because all of a sudden the presence of the Lord becomes more noticeable, becomes more recognizable. But note as he's saying this, he's also saying to the Christian, the way of Jesus is one of laying himself aside. And one of the biggest reasons the Lord is so little visible is that we don't do that. We're too busy promoting ourselves, satisfying ourselves, fulfilling ourselves. And because we're so interested on what do I get out of it, we cover over the Lord with our selfishness and our ambition. And again, it's returning then to this self-emptying of Jesus. As Father Boudin talks about how one lives this hiddenness, he is at great points pains to point out what he considers to be the single greatest obstacle to living the spiritual life. And it's my desire to stand out. It's my desire to be the center of attention. And he's going, he's going to pull new punches on this. He's basically going to say, and we're all guilty of it. Even the person who says, oh, I hate to stand out. Because sooner or later, we all have these ways, some subtle, some brazen, of calling attention to ourselves. Even when we're suffering and saying, I don't want anybody to know, we have these ways of letting people know that we're suffering. You know, we have ways of letting everybody know how hard a time I'm having, how bad a day I'm having. And this desire to be the center of attention, this desire to set the agenda, this desire to be the important one. And so again, he's going to say, whether it is a clergyman trying to politically climb up the ranks of importance in the diocese, whether it's the way a preacher can set up a cult of personality around himself, whether it's the way someone is saying, I hope you appreciate what I've done for you. Um, and again, note how these all begin as understandable tendencies, but very quickly they can hijack us. And this desire for a certain prominence, this desire to be respected, this desire to make a certain kind of impression, 
very quickly leads to the Christian giving witness not to Jesus Christ, but to himself. You know, and there is a certain type of Christian uh, that's very common today in this age where witness talks are really common. And all too often the witness talk becomes not so much about what God has done for me, but about me and about what I received and who I am now. And if we're, very, if we're not careful with these kinds of things, the emphasis becomes look at me as opposed to celebrate the God who has worked a wonder. And the message can be, and you could be like me. And what happened to me could happen to you when the real issue is maybe God has a different plan. Maybe God has a different plan. And maybe what God wants for me isn't what happened to you. And maybe the issue is not that I be like you, but that we both be like Jesus Christ. So again, it's not to say that these things are bad. It's to say that there are subtle traps in them. And if we're not careful, we fall into these all the time. And no less an individual than St. Louis Marie de Montfort in the first year of his priesthood said this about himself. And he was writing, he was writing a letter and he had been in an experience in his initial experience of ministry and he had great hopes for it. And it looked like he was being given the ideal situation of doing the kind of preaching he always felt called to do. And yet the group he was connected to really wasn't rising to that level. And in the middle of his frustration, he was unsure of where to go and what to do. And as he writes to his spiritual director explaining all of this, he also talks about the great desire in his heart to go and teach catechism to the poor with a small band of good priests that he could work with, and how he really wanted to do that. But before he gets to that and articulating this desire, he also is aware of something else. He says, my heart is being tugged in two directions. One is in this direction to go and preach. Go and make our Lord and Our Lady known. And the other is to the hidden life because of my own natural tendency to shine forth myself. And so know what he says. I feel called to the hidden life because there's too much about me that wants to stand out on its own. But I also feel called to go and make our Lord and Our Lady known. I feel called to go and do something visible and public. And in that statement, he catches the two poles of Father Dubat Boudin's book very beautifully. If we really want to show forth Jesus Christ, we have to learn how to hide ourselves. And in the end, Father de Montfort lived a life where he learned to deny himself, to hide himself with Jesus so that when he went out into the world, what the world met was not just Father de Montfort, but Jesus. And in a sense, that, that is exactly the goal, the thrust of what Father Boudin is shooting for in this little book to learn to walk this way of hiddenness with Jesus so that as we move forth into the world, 
we don't merely show ourselves, but that Jesus is allowed the opportunity to manifest himself in us and through us. And so in a sense, you know, one of the take-home messages is your life is hidden with Jesus. Join him there and stop burying him under yourself. And if you really would know the fullness of your life, the fullness of Christian life, always look to where he is hidden. And when you find him, that's like finding that pearl of great price hidden in the field. And when you find, you know, and so what do, what do you do? You buy the field and you start digging. And you keep digging until you find the pearl, until you find the treasure. Um, in a sense, that's what this is. That there's an element of Christian life that isn't obvious. It's hidden. We have to look for it. We have to seek it. We have to let the Lord show it to us. And when he shows it to us, we don't just know more about Jesus. We see more and know more about ourselves. And then when we embrace that, we can live in a way that doesn't cover the Lord over, but makes him visible. Amen. Questions, comments, is everything completely obscure now? <laughs> and, which would not be inappropriate because we're talking about hidden stuff. <laughs> yeah. You know, see, and, and that's the interesting thing. When, 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 when Father Boudon is writing in this way, you know, he, what he really wants to do is, like, if you want to just see a constant pattern in the life of Jesus, it's this. Even as he reveals himself, he hides himself. You know, and, uh, you know, the, uh, one of the classic texts for that is... Uh, from the book of Exodus, when Moses turns to the Lord and says, let me see you. And God says, you wouldn't survive if you did. So here's what we will do. You stay here and I will pass. And when I'm passing by, I'll let you know when it's safe and you can turn around and you can see in a sense my back as I passed you. But you can't see my face. And so note, on the one hand, I'm showing myself to you, but on the other hand, oh, but most of you, you're not going to see. Um, and it's this idea, even as I show you, there's something about me that's hidden from you. And that's the way it is on this fallen side of eternity. You know, Jesus, who is Jesus? He's the word made flesh. We can see him. We can touch him. We can hear him. And we have trouble recognizing him because we're, we don't know what to do with this unexpected way he comes among us. Jesus dies publicly on the cross and shows us the great sign of how much God loves us. And yet even as the world looks, it doesn't understand. It's not that he's not there, it's not that it's not in front of everybody's eyes, but it's hidden in such a way that unless you know how to look and where to look, you don't see it. And so, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a fundamental, you know, and again, so Sue, your point is dead on target with the, with the Blessed Sacrament. The Lord is really present, but his presence is hidden in the aspect of bread and wine. And so the eye of faith can see him, but the eye of the body can't. Uh, so it's a marvelous example, again, of this persistent hiddenness, and again, the eye of faith, what is the eye of faith? It is the eye that knows how to look toward the things of heaven. 
the eye that rests only on the things of the world will never recognize, will never see. Well, you guys are easy on a guy. <laughs> Thank you for coming out. <laughs>